We are in a series going through the book of Second Peter. Encourage you to open up your Bibles to Second Peter. And this morning we are in chapter 3, looking at the first seven verses. Remember with me in chapter 1, Peter charges his readers to move forward in spiritual maturity, to grow, to seek to be more like the person of Jesus Christ. As we came to chapter 2, Peter talks about a real threat to spiritual growth. And that is the presence of false teachers. People who want to sound like they are Christians, act like they maybe are Christians, do some of the things that that others do in church, but in reality have infiltrated the church for the purpose of pulling people away from Jesus Christ. Well, as we come to chapter 3, Peter returns to the emphasis he has in chapter 1. Encouraging his readers, just as he started the book, to grow more like Jesus. To live in holiness. To have lives where when people look at us, they see Christ in us. Because of how we live. And he's going to actually bridge between chapter 2 and chapter 3. By still reminding us of the presence of false teachers, and as he's going to talk about here in the first part of chapter 3, those who actually mock us for our faith in Jesus. But in response to that, he's going to encourage us to keep striving to be more like Jesus. To live a holy life. Especially in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. He could come back today. And so Peter, in these first opening verses of chapter 3, wants to drive home this point. Expect mockers. Expect people to make fun of you because you are a Christian. Because in reality, we are living in last days. And he wants to prepare us so that when it happens, it doesn't catch us off guard. It it doesn't destroy us. We are ready for it. I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter 3. You can follow along in your copy of the text. Second Peter chapter 3, starting to read in verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep... 
all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter is going to tell us here in these verses, expect mocking. Expect to be made fun of for your belief in Jesus Christ, for trying to live your life Christianly within the parameters of a biblical ethic so that you are aligning how you live with what the Bible says we should, how we should be living. Be prepared to be mocked for the belief system that you hold. Here in this case, even believing that Jesus is actually going to come back, that he could come back today. Be ready, Peter says. You're going to be mocked. Why? We are living in last days. Peter wants to prepare us. In the year 2000, I made my first trip outside of the United States. The very first time I went camping, I went to the Boundary Waters. That was an experience. The very first time I went out of the United States, it wasn't to Canada, it wasn't to Puerto Vallarta, it was to India. When I go, I go big. Well, I was ill-prepared for the trip. Even the travel was overwhelming. First of all, it took us 30 hours to get there. We had very poor connections. We spent lots of time in airports. And I knew I was in trouble when I was overwhelmed by the international terminal at O'Hare. We left Heathrow in London and landed in Mumbai, India. And I knew we had to get a connecting flight to go from Mumbai to Bangalore. And I knew we would have to go through customs, so I was exhausted. I am the team leader of five 25-year-olds, and, and I'm the leader, but I've never been out of the United States. And I'm trying to encourage them as we went through customs, we went through this big set of double doors, and we find ourselves outside. We got dumped outside of the terminal, and all of a sudden, it's like 1.30 in the morning, and there's... Literally a couple hundred people around us and grabbing onto me and trying to say, I carry your luggage, I carry your luggage and pulling on me and trying to get into my pockets and guys with little placards saying that they were official and they weren't. They were just trying to rip us off and no one told us to expect this. How do I get onto the plane to Bangalore? 
I finally found a policeman who informed me that to get to my flight to Bangalore, we had to travel about 13 kilometers. And so I said, well, how do we get there? He said, well, you see that bus down the road? Walk down to that bus and get on. So we did. About three in the morning, finally, we arrived at the domestic terminal, got off the bus, and there's two guys standing in front of the terminal with automatic weapons, machine guns. Thought this was interesting. And so I walked past the two guys with the machine guns into this huge room with not a single person inside. You had like, it looked like an airport. There were countertops and airlines, no one working at all. We just were in this big empty room. We can't understand anything that's written. So we sat down. About 5.30 in the morning, some other people had trickled in, and all of a sudden, in Hindi, there was an announcement over the speaker system, and everybody got up and got in this long line. We just sat there. Finally, this businessman came over to us and said, I think you guys should probably get in line. So we got in line. No one had prepared us. No one had told us what to expect. If someone had simply said, now, when you get to Mumbai, you're going to have to actually go to a different airport. And don't be surprised at 1.30 in the morning that there will be a couple hundred people out there trying to grab onto you and try to take your luggage. And and don't be surprised that they'll even, you know, try to be taking advantage of you. And you're going to have to find this really old bus and you're going to have to walk about a quarter of a mile to get there. You're going to get on the old bus and they're going to go in and find these guys with machine guns. You're going to walk past them and sit there for three more hours. And then when somebody says something, just get in line, do what everybody else. See, if somebody would have told us that, we could have been mentally prepared. We could have been ready. But, oh, were we not prepared. Peter wants you and me to be prepared. He wants us to be ready. Not to get onto a plane to Bangalore. He wants us to be ready for the onslaught. The onslaught that comes toward followers of Jesus Christ by a world that stands in rebellion against him. The onslaught that comes against Christians by a counter-Christian culture. And Peter says, I want you to know on the front end... We are living in last days, and in last days, people will mock you, they will make fun of you, they'll ridicule you for your Christian ethic, they'll ridicule you for the the tenets of Christianity in which you believe, they will make fun of you. In fact, as I have read this passage throughout my life, there have been times When I have actually asked myself the question, why is this not happening? And sometimes it's been because I have been too, gone through periods of time where I have been too immersed with just Christians and not spending enough time with people who need the Lord. Because if we are interfacing, letting the light of Jesus shine to a lost world, if we are in the workplace with non-Christians, 
if we are spending free time with non-Christians, if we are verbalizing. Peter says, the world around us isn't going to like it. Be prepared. Now, fortunately, he tells us how to do that. How to be prepared for the onslaught of a culture that stands in rebellion against Jesus Christ. And he's going to do that here in these seven verses. So we're going to begin opening this up. We'll look at it in three sections, beginning with verses 1 and 2, as Peter transitions from chapter 2 to chapter 3. Chapter 2, he's talking about false teachers. He refers to them or they. But as we come to chapter 3, he turns back. It's as if he puts his arm around his readers and says, Beloved. Notice with me chapter 3. This is now Beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. We know that he's going to kind of transition into another subject in verse 8, because in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, But now, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, Beloved. And so between the two beloveds, we find verses 1 through 7. He's addressing his readers. And he says to you, you dear ones, you who I love so deeply. The second letter I'm writing to you, and we can't just assume that the first letter that he wrote was First Peter. There may be some other letters that he's written as well, just like the Apostle Paul wrote some other letters that aren't part of Scripture. But here, Peter's saying, I've written to you about this before. This is the second time, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, it's really interesting, as we look at the whole book, that Peter ends this letter the way he begins it. In fact, he uses even some of the same phrases in chapter 3 that he uses in chapter 1. Remember his message in chapter 1? Press on to maturity. Be more like Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, We have been equipped with everything that we need to live out the Christian life. Verses 4 through 10, so let's pursue it. There, he uses actually similar phrases in chapter 3 that he uses in chapter 1. For example, in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. And then when we come to chapter 3, verse 1, he says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring you up, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. If you look at chapter 1, verse 20, he says, but know this first of all. When we come to chapter 3, verse 3, he says, know this first of all. You see, he's, he's using these similar phrases to draw this whole letter together. Just as he started out saying, press on to maturity. That's his message in chapter 3. He's got his arm around us. And says, I want to prepare you for what you will face. Because we are living in last days. I want you to be prepared. How am I going to do that? Well, by stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Well, reminder of what? He tells us in verse 2. See the little word, that? This is what I want to remind you of. That... 
you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Most likely, the holy prophets here is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures, the writing of the Old Testament prophets. Then he says, I also want to remind you of the commandment. Notice that's singular, not commandments, commandment. It's the same concept that Peter used in chapter 2, verse 21, just referring to the commandment, singular. That term, translated commandment, is used over 60 times in the New Testament, always referring to a parameter or a a moral requirement. And that's what he's saying here, that he wants us to be reminded of what the New Testament authors, what the apostles have written about how our lives should look now that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Remember, we do not enter a relationship with Jesus Christ by what we do. Meaning, we are not saved by our external actions. The scripture is clear that the only way that we can become right with God is not by our works, but by belief in the person of Jesus Christ. Trusting the fact that he is God, that he died on the cross as payment for sin, and rose again from the dead. Transferring the dependence of our lives from ourselves, thinking I can be a good enough person to earn merit with God, and putting our sole dependence on the person of Jesus Christ, believing that he is God, that he died for me, and rose again. And when we've done that, we are Christian. But Peter's counsel to us here which is going to combat what the false teachers are saying, is that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, there are parameters that the New Testament lays out for how I should live. There are commands in the New Testament for what I should do and how I should think and how I should treat people. I am supposed to be living my life in such a way that Jesus Christ's life is seen in me. It's not okay for me to hold ill will toward a brother or sister in Christ. It's not okay for me to use my tongue to cut somebody up. It's not okay for me to have a lifestyle that's marked by promiscuity and sensuality. It's not okay if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. My life is to, in a growing way, look more and more like Jesus Christ. So Peter here says, I'm writing to you because I want you to remember. Well, remember what? I want you to remember what the Old Testament prophets have written. And I want you to remember the commandment, meaning the the entire scope of what the apostles have written regarding the Christian life. And how we should be living. You see, this is very important. Because pretty soon, Peter is going to say, you're going to face ridicule. How do I prepare for that? By digging in to God's word. By having the Old Testament and the New Testament become part of the DNA of my life. 
seeking to know more of God's word is how Peter prepares his readers for the onslaught of a culture that is vehemently opposed to the person of Jesus Christ. Every Thursday morning this fall, I have been getting together with three to four other pastors for an hour at the beginning of the day, and we just pray. And we are trying to follow a very simple little guide to our praying. We try to seek his face before we seek his hand, meaning we spend the first portion of our time in prayer just in prayer, talking with him, praising him for his attributes, for his character. And we use scripture as our guide. So we'll read a passage of scripture together and then we just pray that scripture back to the Lord. And then after we have sought his face, we seek his hand by asking for his provision for us. And we pray for you. We pray for our representative churches. We pray for our cities. And this last Thursday morning, I was so moved. Maybe it was because I was in this passage of Scripture. But one of the guys just prayed, Father, please give our churches a hunger for your word. Such a biblical prayer. Such an encouragement. And that's how he prayed. And that's what Peter is saying here. He's going to prepare us for this onslaught. But he's laying a foundation for how to deal with the onslaught. And that foundation is this book. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to know how to pray for people. Even how to pray for our spouse or our children. One of the best things that we can do in prayer is pray scripture. Pray scripture to back to the Lord. We know we are praying according to his will. For example, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We can pray that prayer. We can take First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, and pray it for ourselves. Father, please give me a hunger for your word. Help me to just, just thirst for it. We can pray it for our spouse. We can pray it for our children. We can pray it for our grandchildren. Because Peter here says it's in the word of God. The encouragement we find there. The parameters for how we are to live that we find here. Those words that the the indwelling spirit of God takes and uses to make us more like Jesus Christ through his work within It is by his word that we are prepared for what we face in these last days. Well, Peter gets to his point in verse 3. And he says, I want you to know this. I want you to know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Peter says, we should expect it. 
We should expect people to mock our Christian beliefs. And in this case, in in 2 Peter chapter 3, especially believing in the return of Jesus Christ. There are those today who call themselves Christians who are teaching this very thing that Jesus is not coming back. And I would guess if if you went to work tomorrow and you spent very much time talking with some of your co-workers about the fact that you believe that the second person of the Trinity who took on humanity, who died on the cross and rose again, is going to come back to do two things. He's going to come back for his people. He's going to come back and set up his kingdom. And he's going to come back as judge you'd probably get, before you knew it, there'd be what Peter calls some mocking going on. Peter wants to prepare us. He doesn't want it to be like me in the Mumbai airport being thrown out on the street saying, what's happening? Be nice to me, I'm from Iowa. He wants us to be ready. And so he says, listen up. I want you to know this first of all. We should expect it because we are living in last days. In fact, the New Testament authors believe they're living in last days. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to turn back a few pages to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. The author of Hebrews says it right in the first part of his letter. Verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. The New Testament authors of scripture, the apostles believe, firmly believe, we are in last days. Peter is saying, now expect this. Mockers will come with their mocking. What's motivating them? They're following after their own lusts. And here's what they're saying. Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So here's their argument. Nothing changes. The world just keeps going on and on and on ever since the first of time. Why do you possibly think Jesus is going to come back? Nothing's ever changed. The patriarchs, they're dead. Have they been brought up from the grave? No, they're still in the ground. Nothing's going to change. It's almost like a deist position where uh, deism says that creator God started this world and then just left it on its own to run according to natural law. And that's what these false teachers, these mockers are saying. And then they're saying, we might as well just live however we want to live. Let's do what we want to do. We're only going to be here once. Let's have as much fun as we can. Mockers will come. I was 26 years old when I first became a pastor. And the facility, our church facility, was next to a high school. And the... FCS, it used to be called the Home Ec, uh, Family Something, Consumer Sciences, I think, 
teacher at the high school every semester asked me to come and talk with her students about premarital counseling, about marriage, and about uh, physical intimacy. That was my subject. Well, of course, those students loved to talk about physical intimacy. I think they knew I was coming and had this idea of, we're going to stick it to this preacher. We're going to embarrass him. So every time I went, some kid would raise his hand, so what do you think about premarital sex? As if I'd never heard the word sex before. What do you think about it? And then you could just see the jeers. And I think I surprised them that I could actually talk about the subject and not turn red. And I talked with them not only about what the Bible teaches about it, but I also talked to them in a very practical way about how the divorce rate is highest in this country between zero and three years of marriage. And one of the reasons why is that when couples cohabitate, the physical intimacy that they experience is kind of like glue that holds them together and they overlook some of the things that they need to be talking about. And then they go ahead eventually and get married. Then all of a sudden, why did you marry me anyway? Why were we even together? And by the way, this drives me crazy what you say and what you think. I don't like that. All of that wrapped up when you take physical intimacy out of where God has it between a bond of marriage between a man and a woman. But you could just see those students, just the derision in their eyes, just thinking, oh, where'd this guy come from, 1950? Do you have an easy-bake oven at home too, you know? It's just like this, this, this sneering, this attitude. How just out of it you are. And it's very subtle. Sometimes it's more in our face. But Peter says this. Be ready. This is the norm. We are living in a culture that is vehemently against the person of Jesus Christ. We should not be surprised that those who are part of that culture will be demeaning, will try to marginalize us as weak people who need religion as a crutch, who who are so intellectually inferior that we possibly cannot see how irrational this whole Christian thing is. Backward, awkward, minority, Jesus freaks. Peter says, expect it. And then he goes... And challenges us and starts to challenge us here and we'll continue in the rest of the book. Keep on. Keep on pressing toward Jesus. Keep on living for him. Keep on walking in holiness so that when people see you, they see Jesus Christ lived out through you. And keep watching for Jesus' return. In fact, we're going to see down in verse 12, he's going to say, looking for 
and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, Peter is going to argue against their argument. They're saying, Jesus isn't coming back because things have just, they started and they've never changed. It just keeps going on and on and on. There's no end to it because there never has been any change since the first day. Peter says, you're wrong. And in verses 5 through 7, he's going to show that these mockers are wrong when they say that nothing will change on earth because God's already broken through history. Peter begins in verse 5 and talks about creation, and he takes us back to Genesis 1. Remember in Genesis 1, verse 2, it tells us that the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then when we come here to verse 5 of Second Peter 3, it tells us, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Remember back to the Genesis 1 account in verses uh, 6 through 8, it talks about by the word of God, the skies were formed. Verse 9, land was formed. And what Peter is saying here is as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, the Lord and His creative work, somehow it's beyond my capability of fully explaining it, utilize those waters in His creative work so that by the Word of God and the waters, He created the heavens and the earth. And then he makes this point in verse 6. You mockers say that nothing's ever changed. The Lord used those same waters to destroy his creation. You forgetting about that? He did break through history. And he goes back to the Noahic flood. And in verse 6 he says, Through which, meaning the water, the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And then in verse 7 he says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. So here's Peter's argument. God created the world. By his word and by the waters. But it hasn't gone on and on and on without anything changing. Because by his word and by the waters, he destroyed it once. And by the way, he's the one that's keeping it reserved for another destruction. For a recreation where this present heavens and earth will be destroyed by fire. And a recreated new heavens and new earth will be the dwelling place of God's people. So he says in verse 7, but by his word the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire. Kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And we know from the whole teaching of the New Testament that that destruction to which he refers here is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Peter reminds us, hey, you're going to be mocked. How do I prepare for that? By having this book in a growing way, become more of the 
DNA of my life. In 1984, my parents moved from Iowa to New Jersey, just right across the river from Manhattan. And uh, so that you, about a half hour's drive without traffic, you could be in New York City from their house. My little sister was between her junior and senior year of high school. So she lived her whole life in Iowa and went to a high school of about 1,500 to this high school of 5,000 for her last year of high school. She dressed different. She talked different. She thought different. She was just pretty much different from the other 4,999 students in that high school. In fact, it wasn't very long at her school, and they affectionately tagged her with the name Corncob. Fitting, Iowa girl. Look at the corn. Look at the Iowa girl. It wasn't a fun year. And as parents, sometimes we can tell our kids, oh, it's just words. Suck it up. Be a man. But words hurt. And it hurts us when we are marginalized for our faith. When people ridicule us for our lifestyle. For wanting to live for Jesus Christ. That's why Peter has these verses here. Because he doesn't want us to be caught off guard. He wants us to know this is the norm. We should expect this. In fact, if it's not happening in our lives, maybe the Lord's calling us in a deeper way to interface more with people who desperately need a Savior. And he says, expect it, but he doesn't leave us without help. He charges us, this is how you prepare for it. This is, this is how you lay the foundation. By remembering the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, verse 2. By having the scriptures grow and become more and more part of the DNA of your life. Now, if you're not used to spending regular time reading your Bible, it's not easy to have that become part of the DNA of your life. One of the reasons why I like to use a hard copy of the scripture, I know I'm old school. Some of you really enjoy doing, reading your Bible on your iPad and your phone. That's, if that works for you, fantastic. But for me, I like holding on to it, partially because I'm really bad at remembering references, but I can remember where verses are on the page. And so when I want to find something, I can actually find it on the... I know it's right here in this upper right-hand quadrant, and I can find it on the page. But for me, there's just something about taking my Bible and spending time reading it and growingly trying to pray over the same thing that I'm reading simultaneously. Have you ever decided to just come, you've come to a decision where, where you say, I am just going to cut sugar 
out of my diet completely. Really bad decision, but maybe you've you've done that. I used to I used to be a pastor amongst a bunch of sugar beet farmers, and they'd love to tell you about the benefits of sugar. <laughs> it's very interesting. But if you ever say, "Okay, I'm just going to cut sugar out of my diet," at first it's tough. It's like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. You know, as a pastor, there are times when I feel like I don't want to read my Bible. Yeah. I don't I don't want to do this today. I don't want to take time to read my Bible and pray. But what happens if we just do it anyway? We just keep coming back to it and keep coming back to it. It's kind of like, okay, I'm kind of weaning away from the sugar and I'm starting to I'm starting to eat some more healthy alternatives. Instead of having a piece of chocolate pie at 9.30 before I go to bed, maybe I'll have a piece of mozzarella cheese that I grill so it gets a nice brown on it with eight almonds. And at first we think, well, that's not a very good substitute. But, you know, we, we have our grilled cheese and our eight almonds, and the next night we have our grilled cheese and our eight almonds, and we keep having our grilled cheese and our eight almonds, and after a while it's like, man, I can, I'm, I'm really looking forward to my little piece of grilled mozzarella and some almonds tonight. Yeah, it, it becomes part of the DNA of how we operate. And coming to the Word... And spending time hearing from God and then talking with God is hard at first because too often we fill our lives with all the wrong stuff, the junk. And it takes us a while to wean off some of the junk so that we can slowly start to appreciate it. But then we can start to yearn for it. And that's what Peter's talking about as he writes. We need to be yearning for it. We need to be praying, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, for our own hearts, for our spouses, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our our good Christian friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would just grow in our hunger for the word of God, longing for that pure milk of the word. Peter reminds us we're going to get mocked. People will mock us, but we are to stand firm by allowing the Bible to shape us, to mold us, so that we are living in holiness, allowing Jesus' life to be replicated through ours. Father, I thank you for this passage We confess before you so often that we fill our lives with the junk food of this world. And because we do, it's hard for us to respond rightly when we come under attack. Help us to have a hunger for your word. Help us at Faith Bible Church to have a thirst for your word. That we would grow in being more like Jesus Christ, as we look to Jesus coming back for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.